done with his official work for the day, Thomas Jefferson sat in the new presidential mansion in Washington, D.C. in 1803. He opened his Bible, but it wasn't to pray, it was to cut. You see, Jackson or Jefferson uh, scoured the text for Jesus' teaching and sliced out his favorite portions and glued them in an empty volume. He called it the philosophy of Jesus. He did lose that book to history. But then again in 1819, he started all over with a new creation and a new version, which he called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly now referred to as the Jefferson Bible. This volume was kept pretty much a secret, and it was passed along Jefferson's relatives until 1895 when it was discovered by the librarian at the Smithsonian Institute. In 1904, it was published by Congress. The Jefferson Bible was an effort to extract the doctrine of Jesus by removing sections of the New Testament containing supernatural aspects as well as perceived uh, misinterpretations he believed had been added by the four evangelists. And if you were to look at the Jefferson Bible today, the first thing that you would notice is that it starts with the account of Jesus' birth, but without references to angels, genealogy, or prophecy. Miracles, references to the Trinity, and the divinity of Jesus and Jesus' resurrection were also absent. Now, before you sit in judgment on Jefferson, consider the action of many Christians in our world today. They, like Jefferson, like to take uh, a figurative scissors to their Bible and cut out anything they don't like and create a Bible that is more to their liking. That essentially happens when they ignore any portions of God's Word, whether intentional, unintentional, or convenient, or deliberately, and we too are often guilty of Jefferson's offense. Uh, We try to avoid the difficult passages of the Bible and focus on only those that we find encouraging. And I I will tell you as a pastor, and especially an expository preacher, going verse by verse, I know that there will be verses that are difficult to deal with, whether it's doctrinally or whether it deals closely with someone that I know may be struggling. And so I myself will struggle with that, but I end up looking at, I am the messenger, not the writer. I have no ability or desire to change the Word of God so that I can preach a a message that would be easy for everyone to, to hear. But I think that if we don't regulate our lives 
we will be guilty of ignoring the verses that show us how God desires us to live. And if we do that, we will end up in despair. Because these verses are there for our good and God's glory. In C.J. Mahaney's book, Worldliness, subtitled Resisting the Seduction of the Fallen World, he tells us of the life of a typical adult American and what each day would look like. He says the waking moments begin with the radio alarm reporting weather, traffic, and headlines. Breakfast is then gulped down with a side order of business news and maybe a few features from the morning newspaper. Then there's the commute to work, where the companionship for the drive is a radio talk show host who is lathered up into a political frenzy, or maybe even a shock jock whose tongue releases a barrage of crude humor. Once at the office, it checks the the email and looks for opportunities to for a little bit of extracurricular web surfing, maybe to shop for a birthday gift, or checking out the favorite blog, or checking up on some celebrity news. At lunch, in the break room, it's spent connecting with the favorite sports magazine, or a talk show that blares overhead, showcasing the latest claimants of fleeting fame. Back in the cubicle for some afternoon boredom, virtual adventure can be found on the internet playing video games, offering a quest for world domination. When the work grinds to a cease, the drive home provides a reprieve from thinking and a nostalgic unwinding to the oldies. A trip down memory lane But that's quickly stopped by uh, pulling into soccer practice where you have to pick up your young daughter who jumps in the, the back seat and buckles up and is warmly greeted with a Disney character coming to life on the DVD screen on the back of the seat. After coming home and getting a welcome kiss from the wife and even a more welcome kiss from the family dog, there comes this irresistible beckoning to collapse in the Lazy Boy and grab the remote, and then, of course, scanning all 300 channels to take the edge off of the workday. Following dinner, the TV illuminates the family room where everyone gathers together for the hottest sitcom, reality show, or crime dramas. The day concludes with a drift into slumber to the soothing voice of a newscaster recapping the headlines in uh, the bedroom on your TV. And for many people, media is the omnipresent backdrop of life. Everywhere you go today, you're surrounded by media, whether at home, in the car, at the store, the restaurant, or even the gas station. I think it's funny how you go to pump gas and news shows up on the pump. And so we're so engulfed with media, it almost seems as though it's a second atmosphere. And we just really don't think 
anything about it. It's, we don't think anything about it more, any more than the air we breathe. But I hope after this morning's message, we will at least give it a thought. Because I want us to take a look at ourselves and how we should respond to the world around us. Should we be concerned or unconcerned? In light of chapter, First uh, John chapter two and verses fifteen through seventeen, I think we should be concerned because worldliness is a temptation for every single believer. And just like Thomas Jefferson, we too like to cut and paste together those Bible verses that seem to allow us to live our lives any way that we would like to, without giving much regard at all to those other verses that tell us how we should separate from the world and stop loving those things of the world. And if John had said to some believers in Asia Minor, to stop loving the world, I think it's even more so to us as well, living in the 21st century. So if you would please turn to our text this morning, it's found in 1 John chapter 2, and we will look at verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So I think we can see that there are themes in 1 John that are reoccurring from time to time as he encourages us to understand what it means to be a Christian. And today we come to the third of the three themes that are repeated throughout the course of this letter. The first one is the Christian is someone who walks in the light. The second one is the Christian is someone who walks in love toward the Lord and love toward the Lord's people. The third one is the Christian is also someone who understands the truth of the gospel and is committed to it. And so throughout this letter, these three themes seem to be woven together again and again in what John is teaching these young first century Christians as he goes through this letter. And of course, um, he is teaching us as well. And we have read just a, a few verses this morning, but they are extremely important to the life of a believer. They're important in understanding the message of the Word of God. These are so important that it's it's amazing that uh, the evangelist D.L. Moody actually has uh, verse 17 written on his tombstone. The word, the world path, passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth. 
forever. Now, I believe that there is a principle contained in this passage that is of utmost importance for every single one of us to understand. We're living in a world that is completely opposed to God. They're not only opposed to God, they're opposed to the Bible. If they actually take the true Bible. Many have taken versions of the Bible that have completely changed its meaning. And so, there are things that are true and will last forever, and there are things that are false and will fade. When Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, he actually set in motion the curse of God that came not only upon man himself, but all creation. And down through the centuries, we have seen a tremendous effect upon humankind that this degenerative force has until we come to a time when there is no explanation for the condition that the world is in apart from the fact that sin has come into the world. There have been incredible advances in technology and economics, the study of sociology and psychology, And people have actually dedicated their lives to these things. But they put them all together. And in the midst of all this so-called progress, we see and hear the death rattle in the throats, especially in this age, as we wait for the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's very appropriate for every age. But I think it's especially appropriate in the one that we are living. And in this warning that comes from the Apostle John in these verses, there is a warning of being caught up with the world system. And so in verse 15, as we look at that again, we see John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the beauty associated with nature. God made it. It's beautiful. But it does mean that there's something wrong if your heart and mind are in tune with what the world has to offer. If this is your kind of place, if these are your kind of people, that you see around the world in general, I think you're in serious trouble. Because because what it means to have eternal life is to be delivered from the powers of darkness. To be translated into the kingdom of God's Son. As that is going to happen one day, both literally and physically. But right now, It happens in the minds and hearts of those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Every one of us who have been born again, born of of the Spirit, everyone that's been born in this world of sin, we have been born again. We were born as aliens from God. We were born as enemies of God because of original sin. 
But when God saves us, He cleanses us, He gives us a new heart. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells us and regenerates us, there is a radical change that happens in the person's relationship to this present world, this present evil world. One of the things that changes for us is we're no longer an alien to God. We're no longer an enemy of God. Now we are an alien to this present evil world. Spiritually speaking, you are at enmity with this present evil world. And that evil world is under the sway of Satan. In the original uh, Greek language, that verse actually says, stop loving the world. And that's a very strong imperative in the Greek. Every Christian continually faces the temptation to love this present evil world and the things of it. But we are commanded to cease, to stop doing that. And we see that word that's translated love in the Greek is the word agapao, or we say agape. And this agape or agapao, love is a self-sacrificial love that has an attitude of, of sacrifice toward what is the present world, the present evil. So we, in our sin, we sacrifice ourselves to the world that is around us. In our natural flesh, we walk according to the flesh. In our natural flesh, we desire these things of the world. We, we love those things of the world. And when the Spirit of, of God is working in us, we're not to glorify this present world. We're not to love the things of this world. We're to glorify and love our Lord Jesus Christ. This agape love is a love that springs from a sense of preciousness. What is the object of your love? The working definition of agape love is a love that is self-sacrifice on behalf of that which you consider precious. For the believer, walking in the spirit of this world is no longer precious, right? We no longer desire that. And in these verses, the Apostle John tells us why this is no longer the case. Notice the chain of logic that he uses. He, as he, he ends up talking about this, he, first of all, we're given the command, do not love the world or the things in the world. That means our affection and preciousness is no longer with the world. And, and so he says that, but then he has a test that's associated with this command. A test of obedience or disobedience. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you have not stopped exercising agape love, self-sacrifice toward this present evil world, and the things of this present evil world are, are what you're all about, 
It says the love of the Father is not in you. The, literally, the original language says the love that the Father possesses is not in you. And so what does this mean? John says they were already guilty of this because he uses the word love. He says they love, which is a, a present imperative. They do it. In the Greek, it speaks of an act of forbidding or continuance. It's an ongoing thing. It means that you have not stopped loving this world and the things of this world. And so by definition, you consider this present world system that is under the sway of Satan as being something that you cherish, that you think is precious. This kind of love that you have means that the love of the Father is not in you. Because this kind of love for the world is prohibited by God. We're told to not be conformed to this world, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He tells those who are of faith, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word beseech there is the Greek word parakaleo, and it means to call to one side, to call for, to summon, to instruct, and even to beg as an informed a form of encouragement. And of course, Paul himself had this attitude because in Galatians 6.14, he said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul had that attitude. And when he uses the word world, it's the Greek word cosmos. And here is reference to the evil world system. The thing in which Satan is the head of. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says uh, that Satan is the god of this world. Now this doesn't mean that we hate all the people in the world. We are commanded to love one another. We are commanded to love our neighbors, even love our enemies. All these people are in the world. But rather, the apostle here, at least here, means the corrupt world system. That thing that has a stronghold for those people who don't know God. It has a stronghold on those people who don't want to listen to God, who do not want to comprehend the light, as Jesus Himself is the light. John 8.12 says, Jesus, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a dark world. And John tells us, don't love it. God hates this darkness, and this darkness opposes him. And 
in any case, it would be stupid for us to love the world in this sense because the world hates us as believers, right? It longs for nothing more than our destruction. And certainly, therefore, we we're commanded not to love the corrupt world, especially in its hatred for God, nor the products that it produces as hatred of the gospel. John's gospel in, in uh, chapter 15 tells us about that. So if you would please turn to John, uh, the gospel of John chapter 15 and verses 18 through 19. John chapter 15 and verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, and it does, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But listen to this. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We used to be of the world, but God chose us out of the world, and therefore we are no longer of the world. And our conduct of our lives should show that. If you just please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be turning a little bit here this morning. I think it's important that we actually see this and we, we can read it for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And he is talking to those people who have been born again, regenerate, who have a new heart, who are now uh, not enemies of God, but they are friends of God. It says, and you... He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. You were dead, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now that takes us to verse 16 of our text, where it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. Here we see the Apostle John writes, why, tells us why love for this present world is an indicator that an individual doesn't stand the test of being in faith. At the beginning of verse 16, he has a logic, logical connective word, and it's the word for. In other words, John is saying, what I've just said is true because what I am about to say is true. Now, this is a very rich statement in the original Greek. And we need to examine these words carefully in order to understand what's at stake in the biblical doctrine of separation from the world. Let me call your attention once again to the opening words of verse 16. For all 
that is in the world. This, in the original uh, language of the New Testament, the word all is used in a collective sense. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through John is that the three things that follow in this verse, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, constitute the entire essence of this present evil world that is under the curse of sin. These things are all this present world can offer. That's what governs the living and thinking and speaking of this evil world. Now, what are these things? Well, the first thing that we see is we need to understand the the word lust. It's the the Greek word epithumia. And it has to do with a desire or a craving for that which is forbidden. It's a word that describes basic impulse of natural man under the curse of, of sin and separated from God. Those who are at enmity with God. It has to do with a desire for that which is forbidden, that is rooted in the foolish thought that there is something to be gained by pursuing that which is forbidden. How many times do we, we go through that in our minds? You know, it, it, it's almost like you see that sign that says, do not touch wet paint and what do you, it's just like a moth to light. It's, we want to do what seems to be forbidden. And the Apostle John here is telling us the sum total of those kind of impulses. It finds the expression in, in the, through the flesh, through the eyes, through pride. We see this for the very first time in Scripture as Eve fell prey to the temptation of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And here it says, so when the woman saw, and that's where she perceived, that the tree was good for food, here we have lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, there we have lust of the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, there we have pride of life, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave her husband with her, and he ate. I think, you know, if you were to think this through, I think we'd be on very biblical, solid ground if we understand the first sin of our first parents was not actually in taking and eating the fruit, but it was in falling prey to the temptation with the result of these three overarching lusts that sprang up in their heart. Outward disobedience of eating the fruit was the expression of this inward fall to sin that had already taken place. And the same things have plagued every descendant of our first parents, even to this present day. In many churches today, we have a constant appeal to the sensory and to the sensual. And so many times, this is called worship. Much of what is called evangelical church today is in fact cultivating lust of the flesh rather than instructing people that if they are true believers in the Lord, uh, as Paul says, that they 
put these things to death in their lives and in their thinking. And in verse 16, he, uh, there's a reference to the lust of the eyes as a component or an expression of the sum total of what this world has to offer. So what does that all involve? It involves living according to these false values. This outward appearance rather than an inward reality. Let me also submit to you that it has to do with the sin of the mind. I've already spoken of the example of Eve in the garden, but Jesus says that on the thir- uh, at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five twenty seven and 28, he said, You have heard it said that those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, so often our physical actions, our outward actions, are just merely an expression of sin that has already taken root and has begun to put forth its fruit in the mind in response to what we've seen. But this isn't only to do with the kind of immorality that Jesus spoke in stating the principle. It also has to do with the kind of vanity that delights in an impressive visual display. We can see that kind of vanity, that kind of appeal to the lust in various forms of entertainment that have taken place of worship in so many churches. In many churches, the lyrics of these so-called worship songs are the elevation of sinful man. What we do, rather than the exaltation of Christ on His throne, the One who humbled Himself and took form of a servant in order that He might give His life ransom for many. We want to sing those songs that elevate uh, Christ that understand who God is. And so in again in verse 16, we have the third component. All that is in this present world. And that is the pride of life. In the original uh, Greek, we see Elidzo, uh, uh, Aladzonea, Aladzonea. And it speaks of empty thinking, of vain confidence, confidence in the resources of sinful man, a foolish confidence in a supposed stability of this evil world. And then actually coupled with that is the contempt for the law of God. And we see that also in the visual, uh, the visible church today. We see people that are more concerned about where they go. Hey, you know what? We go to this big church, or we go to this church, and this is our pastor, and this is so. There's this, you know, you, you have to be the in crowd. You know, I think it's funny. There was a, a study that said that once once a church passes roughly 250 people. A lot of times if they're in an area that can support it, it just 
booms because people go, oh, that must be good. I remember walking out of a, a um, church service one time, talking to the guy next to me. He says, you know, how was that? And I said, well, it was uh, entertaining, but it wasn't very, very biblical. And he goes, well, look around, it must work. Yep. Joel Osteen can say that too. But, you know, that's just a pride. That's going to the right place, knowing the right people, interacting with the, the people that sort of build yourself up. The, the individual who's truly growing in the knowledge of God will also be growing in humility because that individual will realize more and more how great his or her Lord and Savior is at the same time, seeing how small they are. These two lusts and the pride, they come from the world, not the Father. This is the third reason not to love the world. How can you love that which comes from the great enemy of your Father? You know, you need to keep these truths fresh before your mind so that you can resist the temptation to love this world. And then reinforce your resolve with a final reasoning to remove it, to have nothing to do with it. And we see that in verse 17, where it says, And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Here what John is saying is this. God is, is saying if you sell out to something that's passing away that has no value, what are you doing? That's foolish. That is foolish. The world is physical and its system is functioning in a physical way. And it's all based on the lust for man to please himself. For man to exalt himself. This is not God-centered at all. One anthropologist and historian noted that there have been 19 civilizations uh, at one point in history that dominated most of the known world. 19. We're talking about basically dominating the whole inhabited world in their time. These civilizations have now slipped into oblivion. It's not that they decline, they're just no more. The Babylonians, they're on the list. They're gone. The Hittites, at one time they were major powers in the world. They no longer exist. And you could go through the 17 others that no longer exist. It's not that they just went down. They're gone. The person who passes up Jesus to stay in the lust of the world and living for the principles and values of this world will find that in life they will reap and harvest insecurity and instability. You have insecurity and instability anytime you're trusting in anything that can be taken away from you. You know, why do you think Americans today have this sense of increasing title, entitlement? Why is it? Well, it's spiritual at the core. Why 
do we have an increasing number, roughly 50% of our population, who in one degree or another look to the government for entitlement or benefit or to sustain their life? I'll tell you why. Because they're not God-centered. And we used to be a little bit more, at least quite a bit more, but now there's no anchor to God. People want something outside of themselves. They want something that seems to be mighty and invincible. And they look at, especially the United States, as, well, we're invincible. And there's a great number of people in our, in our country that would say, well, the government's going to be, be there and they can take care of other people's money and give it to me and I'm going to be okay. But what they find out, the bad thing is that these socialist and communist concepts pretty soon run out of other people's money. And since they were so big and mighty and trustworthy, they actually fall pretty hard. Pretty soon you end up with the other countries that have gone down this road. You end up being the 20th. And that's because people are shifting from being God-centered, who are taught to be individuals, individuals who look to God to be in a godless people, who no longer look to God, who now look to government as their God, who look to government as their security. I mean, the name of this church, Providence Bible Church. We understand the providence, the provision of God. But you see, when people start to lose the providence of God and they start turning toward the government, they actually are breeding a weak nation. And if you love this, if your love for this world is based on this world and it's a foundation, it's not going to stand the test of time. It's not. But here's something that I, I want to also say. We need to hold this all in tension because we can enjoy the common grace that we find in this world. And the common graces are those things that, peop, that God shows to every person. Um, they're for us, but they're not the end of everything. They're gifts from God to us, but they're not compared with the joy that we have in Him. You know that you're maturing as a Christian when you find yourself enjoying the grace of God in this world, but you go, man, but I love Jesus Christ so much more. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Just sort of like the old hymn writer says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And now our flesh, and by this I mean, I don't mean sinful flesh, I just mean natural bodies. We enjoy the pleasures that God allows us to enjoy. But you see, we, we love God first. We love God most. And so we enjoy these things that the world lovers also enjoy. But here's the difference. We enjoy them in a completely different way. 
We enjoy them in a God-centered way, a God-glorifying way. Our minds and our eyes enjoy the pleasing, entertaining things, but we enjoy them in a different way. We enjoy them because God has given them. We find some joy in accomplishments and even material things that we can get that we have worked for and achieved and purchased. But we enjoy those in a completely different way than the world lover enjoys them. That's not what our hope and stay is. John says, don't love the world. But I think the truth that John is conveying here is that we don't love the world the way the world lovers love the world. Right? We can enjoy the things of this world because God gave them to to us and we want to honor Him in them. And we want to enjoy them. But let's consider some good advice from F.F. Bruce. He says, the effective antidote to worldliness is to have one's heart so filled with the Father's love that it has no room for any love that is incompatible with that. That's great. The effective antidote to worldliness is to have one's heart so filled with the Father's love that it has no room for any love that is incompatible with that. In my office, I have this poem by Jeffrey O'Hara. And I think it's an examination of the professing individual with a sobering conclusion. O'Hara says, Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? You call me the way, and you walk me not. You call me the life, and you live me not. You call me master and obey me not. You call me bread and eat me not. You call me the truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You know, a couple weeks ago I mentioned the phrase Coram Deo. And it means before the face of God. But you see, to live Coram Deo must lead to acting Coram Deo. We must understand the present. The presence of God is before us all. And everything we do is before the face of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to feast on your word and to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us by your indwelling love that which would guard our hearts and that you would use the glorious message of your gospel to fill us with an undying love for Jesus Christ. We pray that we would truly seek to live Coram Deo and act Coram Deo. We pray this in our Lord Jesus' most precious name. Amen.